This is an ABC podcast. The sustainable investment market is a trillion dollar market. So trillions of dollars are literally invested every year for assets that are deemed or rated to be sustainable. But are they truly sustainable though? Sustainability has become a kind of rhetoric that is not that dissimilar from euphemisms like redevelopment or revitalization. It's sort of the same kind of positively associated categories that are really promoting a kind of uneven redevelopment. The reason I label the world's sustainability as a dangerous one is it gives the impression that we can all go on living exactly as we live today, but sustainably with this sort of magic thing wrapped around it. It's meant to be a watchword for how we can live well in the future without destroying the planet in the process. At its best, it provides a prism through which the excesses of development can be avoided. But it's also quite a vague concept, as we'll hear, and open to interpretation. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Interrogating what we mean by sustainable development. That's our theme today. For such a familiar and pervasive concept, it's surprising to discover that it had a very recent conception. Associate Professor Melissa Checker from City University of New York. In 1987, the Brundtland Commission, which was a commission convened by the UN, issued a report. It was about economic development, and there was an acknowledged that economic development programs that were being put in place by the UN and the World Bank and these sort of global economic institutions had really damaged the environments of developing countries. And so they were looking for a way to continue to do economic development, but without environmental destruction. And so they came up with this report about how to have more sustainable economic development, and they called for prioritizing of ecological, economic, and social sustainability, and that that should be at the forefront of all of the economic development programs that the UN supported. And the term really kind of took off from there. It was initially adopted by European cities, really kind of took it on. Also, environmental justice activists really sort of embraced that term as a way to think about the kind of calls they were issuing for racial justice and social justice, along with environmental justice. And then it, as it time went on, it just became, you could say, watered down or became so sort of broad that it lost a lot of its meaning. Central to the original idea of sustainable development was its wide focus. It wasn't meant to be just about economics. It was meant to be much broader than that. As design and sustainability expert Stuart Walker explains. Sustainability and sustainable development, they tend to be used interchangeably. In recent years, I've tended to use the term sustainability more than sustainable development because the notion of continual development, there's quite a lot of assumptions around that and sustainability has has a different sense. Sustainable development is generally understood as taking into account the environmental, the social and the economic concerns and issues and impacts around human activities. And that's typically called the triple bottom line of sustainable development, which was a notion put forward by John Elkington in the late 90s. His notion was it was particularly oriented towards business, sustainable development in business. And 
he wrote a paper just a year or two ago, recognizing that it hadn't really worked. And one of the reasons it hadn't worked was because businesses and large corporations were tending to report each of those factors and take into account each of those factors as separate entities. So they'd report on their economic performance, their social giving and social contribution to the local community and wider charities and so on, and their environmental or green policy. The problem is that when you separate them all out and look at them individually, they can all look great from an individual perspective, but when you put them all together and see the interactions and the interrelationships between those factors, that's where sustainability is found. But if you separate them out, you're not getting that holistic picture. And so it's very easy to create a nice, you know, green annual report about all the environmental things a company might be doing. But what is that in proportion to the whole of their operation? You don't get that interdependence. You've written, haven't you, that you think that the emphasis on the economic side of that triple bottom line is what's always seemed to be more important. That's right, because within our current growth-based system, profits-oriented system to pay dividends to shareholders, within that kind of system, we're always seeking profits. And that's the prime mover, if you like, in a lot of businesses and corporations. And the other things become secondary. So when I started unpacking this area of sustainability reporting, I realized that, you know, in general, there are three scopes to look at, like there are frameworks such as the Global Reporting Initiative, which sets a guideline for corporations to report on. Then there are also standards, which is more prescriptive in terms of the requirements and specifications that need to be achieved. And then last but not least, the third classification is really around ratings and indices. And especially among the capital markets and the private sector, this term, ESG, environmental, social, and governance, has definitely come up to the fore. So institutional investors are basically ranking and following organizations based on how well they're doing in sustainability. Which sounds like a laudable thing. The more accountability and sustainability reporting, the better. But everything is not as it seems, says Renard Sue, a climate change and sustainability advisor with the Centre for Governance and Political Studies headquartered in Malaysia. If you actually take a deeper look into the criteria or sub-criteria or benchmarks that are used by these tools, they are in fact different. So there's actually a lack of standardization, I would say, in terms of the criteria, terminology, and even methodology that is proposed. Even if you were comparing the sustainability report of two different companies, you know, it's not surprising to see that common indicators, common criteria such as carbon emissions are reported differently. One organization might report it in terms of an absolute figure. Another organization might report it in terms of an intensity figure. Or even things like health and safety, like there are tons of matrix that companies can actually use to put themselves in the best possible light, which means that as a user or as a rater who's reading this, it's very difficult to make an apples to apples comparison. You know, it's, this can be extended into the green building and infrastructure sector as well. So when we start looking at the different tools that are available to measure the sustainability performance of green buildings, there are different frameworks. Green Star, for example, that is used in Australia. You have Green that's used in the United Kingdom or LEED in the US. 
or Green Building Index in, in Malaysia. All of them have different or, or varying performance benchmarks. So if you're able to meet a certain criteria, you're able to score a certain point for it. What we have been seeing in this space is that there are some developers or those that are involved in the construction industry who are actually gaming this. So they're literally shopping for easy points in order to meet the minimum benchmark of what would be considered as a, you know, like meeting a green building standard. So we're definitely seeing things like that happening in this space as well. I personally definitely found impression management where, you know, some companies would drop off certain indicators that they used to report to because of that performance in, in a certain year. So there have definitely been cases like that that has emerged. And most scholars or, or researchers actually call this a form of greenwashing. Now, more and more companies are adopting sustainability reporting tools and measures, uh, you've pointed out. But the fact that they're voluntary, how does that impact on compliance and on the efficacy of results? I, that, that's a really good question. And I think that's really the heart of the problem, the fact that it's voluntary. And my personal take on this is that it should, in fact, be made mandatory with really you know, detailed requirements on what is expected in terms of certain criteria that needs to be reported to avoid situations where a company can cherry pick indicators that they want to report on to put them in a good light. In fact, I think in the recent G7 summit, the EU, in fact, has actually made this uh, reporting on TCFD, the Task Force for Climate Financial Disclosures, which is another form of climate transparency reporting. You, you know, they've decided to make that mandatory for EU companies. So what we can expect is a trend or a move towards this area. And the United Nations, they've done a lot of work promoting the idea of sustainable development. Have they also started to see or, or recognise a problem with inconsistency and with the lack of uniformity of these reporting tools? Yes, for sure. I think there's definitely an agreement among you know, high-ranking officials that one of the key things that we need to do is actually to harmonise these tools just because there has just been, you know, like such a, a huge proliferation, like almost every single year, you're seeing a new rating tool emerging in the markets with a different set of benchmarks, different set of criteria. So I think there is acknowledgement that it's creating confusion and it's something that, you know, we really need to change. So just to share, SASB, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board and the Integrated Reporting Council has recently merged as a result of this move towards harmonization. So they call themselves now the value reporting framework. And it would be really exciting to see different organizations also looking at synergies and how they can actually start merging their frameworks together. How significant would it be if there was a greater consistency and a greater standardization of tools? I think the impact will be huge. We have to bear in mind that the sustainable investment market is a trillion dollar market. So trillions of dollars are literally invested every year for assets that are deemed or rated to be sustainable. Now, but are they truly sustainable though? If you look at the different tools that, that you're using, what it does is that, you know, I think to a certain extent, it shows you that there is huge variation in how we define sustainability performance. So while one rating tool might, might claim that a certain company is sustainable, another rating tool might actually show otherwise or the complete opposite. And we are actually making huge 
investment decisions, a lot of pension funds, you know, the big ones especially, are primarily focused on the outcomes of such assessments. So we've really got to get it right and, and get it as accurate and precise as possible. And of course, needless to say, comparability, you know, the lack of consistency are, are basically issues that really need to be addressed. Sustainophrenia is my way of describing the contradictions that are inherent in the way that sustainability is currently being practiced. Melissa Checker has a particular research focus on New York, on the compromises accepted in the pursuit of sustainable development and also rising inequality. What I found were that as it's kind of being rolled out in these different initiatives and measures and practices in New York City, and I think in a lot of cities, the ways that it's playing out, it's undermining its stated intentions. So there's all kinds of contradictions being built into how sustainability is actually being practiced. For example, you can build a green high rise, but if you build it on a wetland, then you know anything that you've kind of done in the process of making it green in terms of the construction materials are going to be undercut by the fact that you just built it on a wetland. So there's contradictions there, there's inconsistency. Is it being used for greenwashing? I mean, is this deliberate, do you think? Well, I think that there's some intention behind it, yeah. I mean, I think, at least in the US, to call a product green, all you have to do is put a green label on it. You know, it's not very many standards or measurements, so it's used as a marketing tool. And I find that that's also happening with city policies and practices. It's it's kind of a lot of this stuff sounds good, and it makes a city sound more progressive and appealing to a certain kind of resident that cities are trying to attract, like a kind of upwardly mobile, sort of liberal urban professional that is going to be attracted to a city that's concerned about climate change and concerned about the environment. But in reality, there's a lot of compromises being made in corners that are being cut under the guise of sustainability. And I do think that it's not unintentional. You, in your research, have looked at the link between sustainable development and gentrification in the city of New York. Could I get you to tell us about what you found there? So what I found was that, again, in this kind of effort to market New York City and market it to more affluent residents and to kind of uh, promote the redevelopment that you know was needed to attract those more upscale residents, sustainability became a very useful sort of concept. And indeed, the city was putting forward these measures to create greener neighborhoods. And so certain neighborhoods were getting new parks. They were getting fewer industrial sites, you know, more things like farmers markets or grocery stores that sold organic food. You know, all of these things that we associate with greening bike paths, pedestrian walkways. But they were sort of being, I found that they are being unevenly distributed across New York City. So they're very much tied to real estate development. And in fact, some of these things are being funded through real estate development, whether it's through tax incentives or different kinds of programs to incentivize development. So it's so closely tied in with real estate development, it can't really be separated from it, which means in effect that all of these sort of green improvements are being unevenly distributed across the city according to neighborhoods that are being gentrified or redeveloped. And one of the problems with that that I found was as that's happening, it's not happening in a vacuum. So as that's happening, as some neighborhoods are being greened, other neighborhoods are becoming more brown. So neighborhoods that are not slated for gentrification or redevelopment 
are getting more toxic facilities, more industrial facilities, and no green amenities. And so they're being kind of sacrificed for the sake of redevelopment in these other places. And those neighbourhoods tend to be the poor, the lower socioeconomic, the disadvantaged. Yes, absolutely. And also maybe out of the way, not convenient to transportation, those places. I know that in New York in particular, there's a long history of gentrification having socioeconomic impacts, particularly on African-Americans. Is this then, in a sense, really just a continuation of those gentrification problems, you know, badged under or covered over by this notion of sustainable development? Yes, I think that I find that sustainability has become, in New York City at least, a kind of rhetoric that is not that dissimilar from euphemisms like redevelopment or revitalization. It's sort of the same kind of positively associated categories that are really promoting a kind of uneven redevelopment. And, you know, I don't think gentrification per se is bad or redevelopment per se is necessarily has a bad impact on low income communities or communities of color. I think that if it doesn't come with some real substantive measures to keep those communities from becoming unhoused, that's where it runs into a problem. I would love to see every neighborhood in New York City gentrified and nobody get displaced from it. That would be fantastic. But unfortunately, with gentrification, usually comes displacement, and that's where the problem is. Melissa Checker from City University of New York. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. So the term sustainable development is problematic. It can be confusing in its application and it can also be used for deception. But is it redeemable? Or is the whole focus on achieving sustainable development counterproductive if you're genuinely concerned about the future of humanity and the health of the planet? Christopher Barnett from the website explainingthefuture.com believes sustainable development is now more problem than solution. The first aspect is that sustainability as a physical concept is impossible. Nothing can be sustainable. Life itself is a physically consumptive process. And the reason I label the world sustainability as a dangerous one is it gives the impression that we could all go on living exactly as we live today, but sustainably with this sort of magic thing wrapped around it. And actually, the only way we can actually preserve things for the future and look after people in the future and and the environment is to change how we live, to use fewer resources, to to value things in in another way. So I think sustainability has become a very politically convenient term to say, oh, let's just add the sustainability world and everything will be all right. And in fact, it won't. You've also taken aim, if you like, at renewable energy and that idea, the idea of sustainability through the use of renewable energy. What's the issue there? Yes, it is one of my pet hates to term renewable energy because, again, in physical terms, there is no such thing as a renewable energy source. Every type of energy requires us to put something in which is non-replenishable to get energy out again. Now, that is obvious when you use, say, something like a fossil fuel. But it's also the case if you want to, say, build a wind turbine or a solar panel, you have to build these things out of something. They have a limited lifespan. It might be a few decades, but it's still a limited lifespan. And at the end of that lifespan, some materials have been consumed in in the production of energy. It's what they call in the energy sector 
EROI, energy return on investment. There is a value of energy out from energy in, and it is never a perfect solution. So again, we're trying to give people this impression we can do what we like, we'll just use a renewable source of energy. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use things like solar and wind power and wave power. I'm highly in favor of these things, but we shouldn't have this idea that actually there is no cost in terms of resources of using these forms of energy. There is a cost in forms of every form of energy that we use. Is it the false sense of certainty of a solution that's the the problem with the term? Yes, I, I think that puts it very well indeed. It gives us the idea that there is a very simple solution. We can just use the sustainable method of something and everything is okay. You know, we can live more sustainably, there's no doubt about that. But if you imagine, for example, if people were in a submarine under the ocean, and obviously you've got a finite amount of supplies of oxygen of food you can have with you in the submarine, you would never think you could stay in that submarine down below the surface forever. You would know that eventually you would have to come to the surface. And you could decide to actually frugally use what you had and you could stay down a bit longer, but eventually you'd have to come up. And I think that's the model we've got to think about more than the idea you can have this magic sustainable solution. We don't have technologies that mean you can have zero use of resources and you can do what you like in any way you like forever. Sustainability is much more than just reducing our use of fossil fuels, even ideally to zero. It's reducing our use of physical resources. Our economy is currently extractive. It's highly extractive, whether it's agriculture, whether it's manufacturing. So in the current economy, what's happening is our use of the raw materials, our material footprint, it's growing in lockstep with the growth of GDP, our economic growth. Chirag Dara, an assistant professor of environmental studies at Korea University in India. So currently, we are absolutely unsustainable, I use. Now, what does sustainability mean? It means that if we want to preserve the current paradigm of limitless economic growth, it has to be completely, absolutely decoupled from the use of material resources. So our economy continues to grow, but the use of our material resources either stalls, it flatlines, or it reduces. But there is this sense of technological salvation. We just have to improve our technology and eventually we will absolutely decouple our resource use from economic growth. But here's the rub. All of this technology is made possible through physical principles, principles of physics and chemistry and mathematics that allows them to happen. But the same principles inevitably limit them. And there are so many such examples. One that's very well known is the efficiency of airplanes or cars. You know, they are internal combustion engines currently, and they're limited by the second law of thermodynamics. And, you know, they are limited to about 80 percent of engine efficiency. And in practice, we only reach about 35% efficiency at best. But then even our renewable energy takes solar photovoltaics. This is based on solid state physics. And we have an absolute theoretical limit on the efficiency of photovoltaics of about 35%. But because of pragmatic and economic considerations, we have rarely exceeded 20%. And that's where the efficiency has essentially stalled for solar photovoltaics, wind farms. That's the other big one. There is a limit of about one watts per square meter energy extraction from by wind farms. 
when they increase in size. So for a small wind farm, you can get three times that output. But as it grows in size, there are these fundamental wake effects. Very simple. You know, a windmill out here extracts a lot of energy from the wind, and the one behind it has that slightly less energy to extract. And so when you increase the size of the farm, there is an absolute limit on how much you can extract. So these kind of physical limits to technology, they come from solid state physics, they come from quantum mechanics, they come from classical physics, thermodynamics. So eventually all of these technological solutions have some kind of physical limiting principles which limit the prospects towards sustainability. Do most scientists, do most developers, technologists, do they realize that there are these physical limits or do they do they realize and put them aside? You know, I've found in my discussions with my colleagues in climate science that when I talk about these issues with them, these physical limits to technology, I found that they are often quite surprised by it. But surprised because they haven't really thought about it, not necessarily surprised that they exist. Because many of them come from physics and chemistry. And for them, uh, you know, when you bring it up, it becomes intuitive. But they haven't actually thought about it consciously. So many of these scientists they've discussed them in their reports, but not necessarily that they're limited. That is a fundamental problem. The whole capitalist system is based on the principle of constantly consuming. And if you look at what's happened over the past three or four decades in particular, we've focused on consuming as much as we possibly can, that we've got a throwaway culture. Economics basically tells us to consume as much as we want, and it doesn't basically cost in the consequences, particularly in terms of recognising there isn't a finite supply of resources, recognising that there aren't implications for the planet and the environment of, of what we're doing. John Maynard Keynes, one of the fathers of modern economics, was once asked about the long-term consequences of his policies, and he said, well, in the long term, we're all dead which is fine for someone in the short-term view, but of course in the long-term, we aren't all dead, our ancestors are still around. We are still around if we're young people looking ahead, and we have to live with the consequences of what we're doing today. And just picking up on that point, there's a trade-off, isn't there, between what we do today and what we decide, what we consume today, and what will be left for others, what will be left for our children and people into the future. And I think that's the essence of all of this. And to some extent, I think the population is often ahead of government in terms of this issue, you know, I think government is, is frightened around the world to actually say we need to do something about it. Government, of course, takes often very short-term decisions and doesn't like necessarily risking upsetting people in that process. You recommend that we should, in a sense, look back or return to some of the practices of the early 20th century and the way our societies operated then. Could I get you to explain that idea? Very much. I think what we need to do is to consume less, but also to value more. We don't necessarily have to have fewer things in our lives. We simply have to have the things that we actually do have longer and take better care of them. We don't have to go back that far to find generations of people who saved up to actually purchase objects, which they kept in many cases for a lifetime. And therefore, they valued the things they had. They had a bigger emotional attachment to objects because they stayed with them a long period of time. Today, there are often cases where people are actually still paying for something they've already thrown away, which is absolutely extraordinary. I think our ancestors would look at us and go, why are you constantly buying things and throwing them away? We need to learn to repair things. And this leads us to manufacturers actually making objects that can be repaired. You know, it used to be if something went wrong, 
you did something about it. You know, you, you changed a part of it, you opened it up or someone opened it up for you. These days we have the solution, oh, it's cheap enough, you can just throw it away, put it into landfill, and, and obviously has massive implications in terms of resources. So actually consuming less doesn't have to be having a less material world. It just has to be a material world in which we have the things we have for a longer period of time. The Earth system, it's going to continue regardless of whether we are here or not. Growth is going to stop whether or not we intend it. It's either going to stop because we want it to stop because we've developed a different paradigm, or it's going to stop because we've run out of resources or easily extractable resources. The Earth system will sustain. The question is whether human societies will sustain or not. So sustainability is important, but if we want to ensure our continued well-being, we need to aim for sustainability in a very deliberate manner. That's the way I see the notion of sustainability. Chirag Dara from Kriya University in India. We also heard today from Christopher Barnett from the website explainingthefuture.com, Melissa Checker from City University of New York, Renard Siu at the Centre for Governance and Political Studies in Malaysia, and Stuart Walker from Lancaster University in the UK. You've been listening to Future Tense. The producer was Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.